Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who once saw Tony Bennett say about him, who the F is this guy? It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Yay me again! Yay me! Episode number eight. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Uh, I got a wonderful guest, uh, JD Roth. I'll introduce him in a bit. Jeremiah just showed up. The boss is here. We have to be good uh, today. But uh, the Tony Bennett story is is a favorite of mine, and it's a favorite of Howard Stern. He made me tell this sh- uh, story a couple times on his show. So uh, during Son of the Beach, we had Frank Sinatra Jr. on the show playing a character named Stinkfinger. Okay, that's going to get bleeped. But the character was like a Bond villain, an evil Bond villain. And we wrote a song for him, uh, like a Goldfinger song called Stinkfinger. You can see it on the internet if you want sometime. So, uh, so he, invited us, he invites us over to, uh, to Las Vegas to see his show, which is wonderful. And I'm a huge Frank Sinatra fan. And uh, we go, and it's Dave, me, and it's David Arquette, who had been in the show too, was a good friend. And then it's also... Um, Okay, got somebody walking in there. Um, we're loose here. Uh, and it's uh, the two guys I did the show with, Jim Stein and Dave Morgison. So we go over to Las Vegas, and Frank starts the show at the MGM. It's just great. And uh, during the show, or all of a sudden, we're sitting down, and we see Tony Bennett is coming to the show. Now, you got to realize, we're seeing Frank Sinatra Jr. The audience is a median age of 80. And everybody has white hair. And Tony Bennett is there. It's like, oh, my God, this is really cool. We're in Vegas, and Tony Bennett's like two tables away. So the show starts, and Frank Jr. starts doing this show, and it's wonderful. It's like really close to sounding like Frank Sinatra. He's got this big orchestra, and he's really great. And then all of a sudden, he said, now I'd like to take a little moment to introduce some of my Hollywood friends who are here in the audience. And I'm thinking like, uh-oh, I hope this doesn't. He doesn't introduce me. So, because I don't want any attention. And, and anyway, he starts doing introductions. His first guest, she's the lieutenant governor from the state of Nevada, the, the silver state. And this former showgirl like jumps up and she waves to everybody like, oh, hey, hey. and it's like a nice round of applause. And then he goes, uh, and uh, an actor from Hollywood is with us. His wife is, is Courtney Cox from Friends. David Arquette. So David's at our table. David gets up and he waves to everybody. And it's like, oh, David Arquette. People are excited. And he goes, and one of the great impressionists of all time is here with us tonight, Rich Little. Now, I grew up in the 70s. It's like Rich Little. Wow. Oh, my God. Rich Little gets up and waves. Then all of a sudden, he get, and now I'm thinking, he's not going to introduce me now. It gets worse. Then he goes, my father's favorite singer is here today ladies and gentlemen one of the great crooners of all time tony bennett and the place goes berserk it goes nuts because tony bennett next to frank sinatra you think it's tony bennett is the next best singer place is going berserk then frank jr i love him he's no longer with us but just such a nice guy goes and now the big treat and a drum roll starts like the one we just heard introducing me Big timpani drum roll comes in. Ladies and gentlemen, he's here. He's with us. He's the star of Son of the Beach. People are looking around like, what is he talking? Nobody's Son of the Beach. These people are 80 years old. He's here, Tim Stack. And there's there's, there's silence. And I get, I kind of stand and I look over at Tony Bennett, who's looking right at me. And I see him say, who the F is this guy? <laughs> like, he's getting introduced after me? What's going on here? Anyway, Frank did the show. And he sang he sang the song from the show in the act, Stinkfinger. It's just like, like what? Anyway, that's the, uh, that's the uh, Tony Bennett story, which uh, was very embarrassing, but really funny. Okay. Let's hear that drum roll again, because I'm going to introduce our guest. It's going to be a long introduction, okay, because there's a lot of stuff going on here. He's the voice of Johnny Quest. 
the host of Funhouse. I want to talk about both of those things. The pr producer creator of Bar Rescue, producer creator of a legit like mega, mega, mega hit, The Biggest Loser. Obviously, we're going to talk about that, just to name a few of his creations. He's the author of the books, The Big Fat Truth, also Your Money, The Missing Manual, also The Handbook of Lutheranism. I'm just kidding. But there is a guy named J.D. Roth who wrote a book called The Handbook of Lutheranism. So I'm assuming that's not you. Who the hell is that guy? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> He's the husband of Chris, father of Cooper and Duncan, who are great kids. I know them both. Anyway, a big hand for Mr. J.D. Roth. Yay! <laughs> Listen to that applause. Me I could listen to your stories all day. And I do, actually, when we're out. It, yes. It's the only thing that helps me ignore how bad my golf game is when we're out there is the fact that I know at least another good story is coming from you. And also back hearing them from you. Because one of the things <laughs> we that we share is an incredible length of time in show business and also a good attitude towards it. Like, it's not the most important thing. So you can laugh at these insane stories that have happened to you over the years, some of which we're going to get to today. So anyway, thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for being here. So, um, and speaking of stories, you and I reconnected, uh, but I want, because JD is an incredible salesman. I've told you that, and we've pitched some shows <laughs> together that sadly were not bought, but it's really fun to watch him in action. So one of the things is, just tell your version, then I'm going to tell my version, of how you and I reconnected. Okay, so the original connection was a great show that Mr. Tim Stack was one of the stars of uh, called Parker Lewis Can't Lose in the 90s on Fox. The uh, girl who played Parker Lewis's girlfriend on the show was my girlfriend. And I would come to set, yeah. and I got to know Tim because we're both from the Philadelphia area, so we talk sports and Dr. J and all that kind of stuff. And then we lost touch show ended and as always in show business everybody goes their way and your family one minute and you don't know them the next minute yeah and many years uh passed and i i you know i can't say that uh, uh you know i was looking for tim stack but i always kept my eye on what he was doing you know i'd always catch him here oh my god there's tim you know <laughs> on an, on yet one another show that he's funny on um and then my son to come full circle when he turned 11 wanted to become an actor I said, dude, you, you, you can't. You're too young. And of course, he said, well, you started when you were 11. Yeah, we're Why can't I? We're going to talk about that. Yeah. What a pain in the ass he was. And, uh, and so he started and he showed up on a show uh, for Disney. And I went to accompany him to try to like have him grow up in this business the right way, which there's, you know, there's a wrong way and a right way. Um, and lo and behold, I walk in and who's the executive producer and writer and head, you know, guy, Tim Stack. And we were like, <laughs> no way. After it, it had to have been, I mean, oh, 25 years since we had seen each other. I would say it's 25 years. Parker Lewis was over like 92, maybe something like that. And so I think you worked on the show that Cooper was on in what, 2015, 2014, something yeah, like that? Something like that. Yeah. So 25 years. Uh, yeah. And we, we just started talking again and it was really, really fun. I'm going to tell you my version, which I don't think I've even told you about because I walked, what happened was I'm, I'm on the set and I'm not the, just so you know, everybody, I'm, I worked on this show, Kirby Buckets, which is a really clever show on uh, Disney XD. And I was just a writer and they brought me on the set because I spent so much time with actors that I sort of looked over the set. So I'm on the set that day and this kid Cooper is good. He's the guest star on the show and he's good. So I'm not worried about that. That's not a problem. But I keep looking over and it's like, there's a guy, how, how do I know that guy? Like, I know that guy from somewhere, and he's sort of standing off to the side watching it. And I don't say anything. Or maybe I said, oh, they said that's Cooper Ross' father. I went, oh, okay, Cooper Ross, I don't know. And I'm not putting two <laughs> to two together. So then I walk upstairs, and there's a writer on the show who used to work for, he was in re the reality world, and he worked for, who's the guy who did Survivor, the big name? Mark Burnett. And he had worked for him. But he's going nuts. Because he's saying, you're not going to believe who's downstairs. And I said, who? And he goes, J.D. Roth. And I said, and I, I'm not familiar with the reality world that you have gotten into by, at this point. And I'm saying, like, J.D. Roth, like, 
Hyman Roth? Who's J.D. Roth? <laughs> what, who? And he he's the biggest loser. And he said, so it's, and then I start putting two and two together. And then I go into the IMDB thing, like to look at the, and I realize, oh my God, it's J.D. Was, I knew him in Parker Lewis Can't Lose because I you were doing Funhouse at the time. And yeah, which yeah, was a big right. deal. People don't remember it, but that was a big deal game show that you were hosting at the time. Anyway, that's how uh, you and I reconnected. My version of it was this guy was yeah. like, you're not going to believe who's downstairs because he had worked in reality. And you are, I'm not lying here. You are a really big deal in that world, having created a monster hit with The Biggest Loser. Yeah, we had a good run for sure. It was always funny because I would go to set as Cooper's dad. Yeah. You know, whether it was he did a series with James Caan on ABC or he did a film. And then somewhere along the line, there would be some crew member right. who either worked on one of my shows. And I would go from the guy, you know, how they treat all the parents on the shows, like shove you in a corner. You don't yes. get, you stay away from the food table, yeah. you know, go outside. And next thing you know, I got a director's chair sitting right next to the producers on the set. You know what I mean? I, I, I always ended up going from Cooper's dad to like one of the gang. The other thing I'm remembering now, looking at you and like, who is that guy? Is most parents, when if they have a guest star on a show, they're trying to work their way into the parents of the regulars to try to get information about their, you know, they're mingling with the other parents. But here you are, you've created these monster hits. You're not looking for your, you're not looking for your next gig, certainly not on the set of Kirby Buckets, and you're not really part of that group because you don't need to be. It it was uh well, I'm just not a mingler in general, Tim. <laughs> I think you know that. I'm not that's never been my deal and I think growing up in the business at a very young age. Yeah. This is my 45th year in show business. Yeah. So, it's just what I do. Like some people are lawyers, doctors, like this is my job and I love I love doing it. But yeah, I've never been about those parent groups. And I grew up as a kid in the business right. who saw others' kids' parents. Right. I grew up with Anthony Michael Hall and I, I mean, in that era and saw what their parents were like. Yes. You know what I mean? And so I've yes. been around it so long, I can identify that stuff from pretty far away. And interestingly enough, Tim, yeah. Kirby Buckets, you know, Jacob, who yes. was the star of Who Was Kirby, my son met him on that show. And they have been inseparable best friends since that day. And I mean, literally, Jacob practically lives with him at USC when he's not shooting a very big show that he's on now, which I know you know. I don't know. You don't? Oh, oh. Uh, oh Cobra Kai. Oh, Cobra Kai, J yes. Jacob I'm sorry. I thought you were about Cooper. I thought you were talking about Cooper for a second. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. Jacob uh, on no, Cobra so Kai. It's his huge. life. Yeah, his life changed so much, so dramatically. And so Cooper has kind of the traditional college, you know, USC film school experience. Jacob has the onset star of this big, you know, global show. And so they're sort of vicariously living together through each other's life. So Cooper went with him to South Africa to do a, a tour thing for the show. And Jacob lives with him down at campus. So it's kind of nice to see they grew up together. I would love to see the two of those because Cooper, I've seen Coop, little films that Cooper's made. He's very talented. He clearly has it. Where that goes, who knows? In in today's world, which we can also talk about later. Yeah. But um, but I'd love to see those two guys do something together, even in a fun like turn the iPhone on and see what happens kind of thing. Because they're both super they did a school, creative. They guys. did a film together. Oh, they did a couple months ago. Oh, great! Yep, for USC, and it screened in the big USC theater um, in oh. the cleanup spot, which was like the best you know spot for the movie to be to be last. And so they did do their first pure film together. I'd love to see that. I saw the uh, improv sketch show that Cooper did, which was really funny. Yeah. Because um, he's like a he's like a Charlie Day character. I told you that he's like a Charlie Day character. He's really funny. I mean, he's just. But I'd love to see what they made on uh, on camera. Okay, we're we're coming up on our first break. I got so much I want to talk to you about. I want I'm, when we come back. I do want to talk about your childhood acting experiences because that. That, to me, is so unique, what he's going to tell us about growing up in New York as a child act, but not even in New York, in New Jersey, taking the bus to New York. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Funhouse, um, and, I, and I also want to talk about Johnny Quest, but that'll be later on. we got a lot to do, because I looked through the IMDb okay. list, 
of Johnny Quest. And that's crazy, the actors who came through there to do voices. So anyway, oh yeah, we're going to take our first break. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I'm talking to J.D. Roth. You can find him at, at J.D. Roth on Twitter. And also remember the show Sprung on Amazon Freebie that I worked on. It looks like it's headed Great for, uh, I think it's headed for a second season. So we'll see. We worked last week. Anyway, more news on that later. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody. It's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny. It's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. You know what, guys? I'm feeling real crabby, and we're going to find out why today on One Hour. And now, here's the guy who puts the fun in front house, J.D. Ross. Yo, hey, Jay. You know what? I think I know why you're feeling so crabby tonight. Why? Well, uh, why don't you turn around, big guy? There you go. You see, Tiny's got a lot where he sits around the stage. There are crabs everywhere. Right. There are crabs everywhere. Uh, that was a clip from Funhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crabs joke. There was a lot of Sun of the Beach crabs joke. Um, so, what year? What, Funhouse was what years? Like uh, 80. 80 fall of 88 right until 92 and we did 500 episodes oh over gosh. those four years that's unbelievable and i just remember the time that was like a show you'd watch because it was fun there were a bunch of sh- like game shows on at the time that were fun original game shows like studs yep. that was another one people watched that people watched funhouse and they talked about that so let's i want to go back a little bit before that and I want to go back to, you know, uh, J.D. mentioned we're both from Philly, uh, both 76er fans, although he's more of an 83 guy. I'm a 67 guy, but we've, we've found a lot in common there. Um, but you started out as a child actor, but you're living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is outside of Philly. And you would take the bus to New York after school every day. Every day by yourself every day yeah i so, mean it, it was an interesting thing right because my mom was a stay-at-home mom my dad was a lawyer and no one it's not a creative endeavor right. you know in our house of any sort and they couldn't understand why i would roll up the tv guide and interview the mailman when he came to the house <laughs> or when we would watch a game show i would be saying the host line instead of trying to figure out the puzzle that's funny and i would say because it's the same lines over and over again i'm like it's so easy to know what the guy's going to be saying. And so I don't think I ever consciously thought, oh, I'm going to be a game show. That, that, that never happened. I only knew I wanted to get inside that box. Right. And I didn't understand how. And I impersonated my dad's voice on a Sunday showcase that I had heard about through the Yellow Pages, mind you, uh, in New York <laughs> that uh, had a kid's showcase. So I just called and made an audition for myself. Um, as a family, we had never been to New York City. Like back then, yeah, two hours away, it might as well have been in Alaska. Right. And you had I mean, never been to New York. Yeah. Nobody, nobody went to New York. You went to Philly. You, you get a cheesesteak. You're on South Street. You, you know what I mean? You never, New York was unthinkable. Right. So I was, um, I was 10 years old. And um, I remember my parents saying, we're going to take you. You're not going to get it. And that's going to be the end of it. I don't want to <laughs> hear about this anymore. No more of this showbiz. Yeah. So they said to bring... Um, music with you to sing a song. I had never sang anything but happy birthday. Yeah. And so the only thing I had, yeah, there's not an exaggeration, there's a true story. The only thing I had was a cassette tape of Billy Joel. And um, I didn't know you were supposed to bring sheet music like professional kids. Right. There's a piano player there playing the, and you sing the song. I, I didn't know. So we get there, we drive two hours. Yeah. My sisters are there. We check into a hotel. It's a whole thing. There's a line around the block. For this and showcase. I wait in the line. It was on First Avenue and 82nd Street. It oh was a little gosh. like club. Yeah. And I, I waited in line around the street. And it was, the club's name was called Something Different. That's literally the name of the place. And I waited until it was my turn. And I went in. 
And they said, where's your sheet music? I, I said, here it is. And I didn't know the difference between sheet music and cassette tape. I gave them the cassette tape <laughs> and they put it in. And I sang with Billy Joel. I sang Honesty at age 11 or 10. And I think they must have just thought it was funny. I don't know. Yeah. But in the end, five people got this showcase. It was me, Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, my God. Who ended up going on to be Annie on Broadway. Yeah, and yeah. Obviously, fame beyond belief. Ricky Lake, who oh also went on to become gosh. extremely famous. Allison Smith, who was on that series that I know you know, Tim, uh, Kate and Allie. Yeah, sure. For like 12 yeah, she years. was one of the kids Never on that. Television. Yeah. She played one of the kids on it. She also was Annie on Broadway and, and one other person. So it was the five of us. And, and we would do this like singing showcase. And that's literally how my career started. Um, but then yeah, that's the most singing I've done to this day. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. It's almost like an Andy Kaufman bit, like you're bringing the cassette and singing along to it for your audition. Yeah. No wonder they liked you. So, but, but one of the things you talked about was like, then after you continued with the showbiz thing, your parents let you, and you would take the bus by yourself up to New York into yeah. Times Square, which back then, you know, Disney had not invaded Times Square. Oh, no. It was a rough place. And I also, I'm 11, 12 at this point, right? And I, and I look like nine. Yeah. You know what I mean? So <laughs> that's the other thing. So my dad, I remember my dad saying, listen, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. And when you run out, you're done. And I was like, <laughs> how, you ever, how are you going to run out of a thousand dollars? Like impossible. Right. Well, I got to know the bus. I started doing my New York thing. I got to know the bus driver. So I didn't have to pay for the bus tickets. Yeah. And I, like, I started coming up with all my little schemes of, you know, how I was going to stretch this thousand dollars to infinity. Um, it did not take long though. Um, I, I, uh, I booked a lot of commercials. I, I was this redhead freckled, you know, kid with a reading ability that was five years past the age I looked. So I looked nine. Right. And I'm reading at a 13 year old, you know, level. Cause I was close to that age and it was in the beginning, it was kind of taking candy from a baby. I booked commercial after commercial after commercial. I think I still hold the record most national commercials done in a year um, for somebody under 21. I did 22 national commercials my first year, and I was making more than my dad, who owned you know a few <laughs> law firms and was a pretty successful lawyer. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know that until I was already in college. I didn't even know I was making money, Tim. No joke. The checks went somewhere. You didn't. That's so I, I noticed a lot of mail coming to the house. Right. You know what I mean? With my name on it. But right. I had no idea that there were checks. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. But I just, the, the image of you as this little red-haired kid walking through, you know, past places like, like Show World. Like, th there was a place in New York called Show World where they had yeah. live sex acts. Like, as soon as you yeah. went in the door, there were live sex acts. And I just keep thinking about... This little red-haired kid walking through. Well, it was the Port Authority, right? So I yes, landed in Port Authority, Authority right? But where there was a, a fantastic Arby's that knew me by name. Yeah. And so on my way back, I'd always get my Arby sandwich and my French fries and drink for the bus ride back. All the commuters on the bus would help me do my homework. That is so, so my funny. math homework or whatever whatever I had. The bus drivers were friends. You know, very early on, my mom started to go with me, but like she also had two other kids and a husband. Yeah. And I'm in New York five days a week. <laughs> and then for one year, I hired a retired truck driver and he would take the bus with me. But these people were slowing me down. So by the time I was 13 years old, I was just, I was like, look, you guys were weighing me down. I just started going in the city by myself. But many a time, Tim, in Times Square, at those shows, as I'm walking by, people would grab you by the arm or, hey, kid, come here. You know, yeah. it really helped me kind of have that chip on my shoulder that I needed in the business, that armor that you need to have. Without knowing it, it really did help. But it sounds like, and this is something, it sounds as if you were born with, which is a natural kind of chutzpah to get out there and do it and not think about anything else. Which yeah. I didn't I remember a bus driver said to me, uh, listen, like, you know, we're going to Port Authority. You're going every day because you, you have to learn how to put a look on your face. And I remember I literally remember sitting on the front <laughs> bus step going yeah. 80 miles an hour, not in the seat, on yeah. the step of the bus. And I remember he's like, you got to have this look. And I was like, well, what's the look? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'll never forget. His name was Ray. And he said, you got to look like you just killed your mother and you liked it. 
<laughs> I look like Opie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how am I ever going to come up with a look that looks like that? So I tried to perfect. So Ray would work with me on the look. Like, how, you know, what's, wh- how are you going to do it? And I would try, but I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was futile, as they say. Oh, my gosh. Of course, all I, Tim Stack, all I'd be thinking about is like, where can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> like, like, where are the bathrooms I can use in New York? That Anyway, because I still I love Tim, I love the city. You put me in the city, it is my home. I was left there for hours on end between auditions. Yeah. I, had, I, I, would, I would second act uh, Annie because I had friends in the show. Yeah. You know, so I'd, I'd second act many plays on Broadway and hang out with these people backstage. I ate at Popeye's fried chicken on, yeah. you know, 44th and Broadway and got ha- uh, twofers for, for tickets. And like, it, it's in my soul when I go back to the city and um, so much of my childhood memories, you know, I, I guess I'm from the Philadelphia area, but my life was in the city. Right. Uh, how much, how are we doing on time, Dr. D? Oh, we got plenty of time. Good. So, uh, and so early on, and then I remember you told me like, well, you mentioned the people you showcased with Sarah Jessica Parker. I had forgotten that Anthony Michael Hall. Um, and was it the Woody Allen movie you got? Cl- it was between you and Seth Green, right? Was it Radio Days? What was the Woody? Was Seth Green? There were there were many, but the most I think anyway, the most famous one for me that hurt the most yeah. was uh, Vacation. So I stayed overnight at Anthony Michael Hall's house the night before the final callback for vacation. So it was seven callbacks, you know what I mean? And like, I'd never seen Anthony Michael Hall act. He was just Michael to me. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like he wasn't famous yet. Right. And I stayed at his house and we, um, we, we would jump the subway stanchions back when you could do that. We hopped on the subway for free. And then we went to our audition <laughs> uptown and we walk in and they say, Hey, it's down to just the two of you. I know your friends, you mind reading for him and he'll read for you. And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. And Michael, go ahead, you go first. And he's two lines into the script. And I, I'm like, oh, I, I'm done. Like, it's not even, my talent's not even in the same zip code yeah. as what this guy was. Like, there's no, I, I should have never even read. I should have just put the script down and just walked out of the room. He was that good and that far ahead of everyone. His ability naturally was spectacular. And that movie was the start of his, you know, rise to the one of the most famous people of that that decade for oh sure. yeah 100 percent um so then so what year did you move to hollywood because you because so you had a uh, career i applied to college because i have a jewish mom and she's like yeah yeah you're going to college yeah this acting thing you never know that's going to work out so i applied to nyu uh juilliard and usc and I got into all three and my mom cried when I decided not to go to Juilliard. And NYU said, the city is our campus in their acceptance letter. I'm like, I've been roaming the city for like right. 10 years now. I know it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a campus. And uh, my nickname in, uh, uh, in high school was Wood, which was short for Hollywood. And so I just, I, I, I had been on Star Search, made it to the finals while I was in high school. What so did you do on Star California. Search? What was that? What was your act on Star Search? It was back when they had an acting competition. Oh. And so also it was back when if you won, you had to wait a whole week to shoot another episode. Right. So there I was in on Sunset Boulevard in the hotel by the studio and I kept winning. Yeah. And so kept Tony Danza was my celebrity one week and then so someone else was you know and I kept winning so I kept staying there so I would go on auditions at the studios while I was there because you know I'm out there talking myself up right and uh do you 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 had an agent though at this point you had an agent at this point I had an agent on the east coast who knew someone on the west coast kind of thing and um yeah I I just fell in love with it so I, I chose USC uh and could not wait to get out to LA and spent more time trying to get out of school yeah. than I did trying to get in. And actually, I, Tim, I got Funhouse as a USC student in the middle of a semester of school. And so I got the show. We do the pilot and the show gets picked up for 22 episodes. I'm fully stoked. I'm going to stay in school, do the 22 episodes. And by the time the show was on for, I think it was one or two weeks, it became the number one kid show in America. And they picked up 195 episodes. A hundred. <laughs> imagine you get paid by the episode. Right. I'm just a kid in college. 
you know, 195 episodes. And my life went from a dorm room, not an exaggeration, from my dorm room, a month later, I was on the cover of Teen Beat magazine. And my life was completely upside down after that. Uh, that is so great. But you and, and, and the move to producing, I want to talk about that after the break. And we got some other stuff to talk about, too. But then the move to producing happens like around the same time or a little bit. Was it Funhouse that made you realize like uh, this isn't enough for me? Hosting is just not yeah. enough. Yeah. The uh, well, do you have time for the story? Do we have time? Yeah. All right. Sweet. No, let's take it. Um, we'll take a break goes- and we'll come back and do that. Okay. Okay. We'll take a break now. Okay. okay. JD Roth is my guest on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll be right back. What if I told you that many of America's deadliest health issues could be wiped out? All you need is to know one simple secret. In my new series, The Big Fat Truth, I give people the easy tools they need to lose weight, get healthy, and transform their lives. I just feel like a totally different person. And you can make the change with us. Sign up for the free Big Fat 30-Day Challenge at ZLiving.com. And don't miss The Big Fat Truth, Sunday at 8, only on ZLiving. So I want to get to your transformation. I'm going to start with transformation to producing, and then I want to talk about the health stuff, because it's so funny. You're talking about all those horrible restaurants you ate at when you were a kid, and now you're as healthy a person as I know, certainly I know, without being crazy. That's the other thing I like about you is, like, you're healthy, but you're not, like, a preacher. Like, nobody feels uncomfortable eating a cheesesteak in front of you. Um, so, So go back. Because clearly, I, you know, and having spent time with you and seen you in action and, and your obvious success, it's like hosting, I could see just not enough. Like, yeah, it's fun getting recognized and all that. You meet hot girls like the girl on Parker Lewis, but it's clearly not enough. And also probably not enough, I'm guessing, financially. Like you see, this isn't where the big dough is made. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. I mean, being a host, as Dick Clark used to put it, you know, being a meat puppet is fun, but ownership is everything. And and he told me that when I was young, I was probably 21 years old. He he said, I hear you're the next me. Turned out he was wrong. Ryan Seacrest (laughs) was, um, (laughs) who's incredibly talented. I'm a big fan. Um, But yeah, he he explained to me that the the meat puppet thing is great. But if you really want a career, you have to own stuff. And I, I took that to heart. Now, before I had this run in with him, Funhouse was a big hit. And I thought, you know, I remember going to theme parks growing up and seeing celebrities at theme parks, Sure, you know, signing autographs. I could do something better than that. I could do a live version of these physical games and let the kids who love the show play the games they watch on TV in their own neighborhood, practically. And I was very hyper aware that Warner Brothers owned my show and Warner Brothers also owned Six Flags theme park around the country. Wow. So. I went to the head of Warner, Dick Robertson, who used to walk around with a putter. I remember office. that guy. Yes. Delightful human being. Yes. Um, very entertaining. Probably could have been a host himself. And uh, I said, you know, Dick, like, this is amazing. We could do these live shows. You own the theme parks. I'm like, this is like promotion for you. This is what Disney does. Right. You know what I mean? This is great. And I'll never forget. He goes, kid, he goes, just go bleep some girls and have fun. <laughs> I got you under contract. Just go have fun. You know, and it kind of kicked me out of his office. Right. I was 21, you know, and and I might have even been 20. So I left his office and I was like, yeah, I'm from New York, man. We don't take no for an answer. So I called the president of Six Flags and I said, um, Dick Robertson, (laughs) it's a great idea that I do one week in every theme park (laughs) you have. And the guy's like, that's brilliant. And he booked me in every Six Flags park in America. And now I had to go back to Dick Robertson, the president of Warner Brothers, right. and say, hey, by the way, I ignored you. Right. And I did it anyway. Not only did I ignore you, I said you really liked this idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. I told him. I mean, you know, and I think the chutzpah part you're talking yes. about, he loved. And he laughed so hard when I told him. I thought he might kill me. Yeah. He laughed so hard. And then... To his credit, he gave me the rights for the tour 
to the show for free. And um, so you no got one the, so you got the house, so to speak, like a comic booking yeah. a club. You you own the house. So and he allowed me to promote the show through the affiliates, you know, the, the TV stations. And that really gave me the runway for my producing chops to kind of start. We built a very large 250 city tour over five years. Oh and that allowed gosh. me to not only make some incredible money, but it gave me the runway of time to be able to kind of go, okay, now how do I create shows and do it for myself? People were calling me to host shows and I would just say no, hoping that I could sell a show and then give myself the job. Right. And so what was the first thing out of the gate as a TV producer? Because I'm looking I sold at- a show to uh, NBC. It was called Double Up. It was a dating show for teenagers where a brother and sister came on. The brother picked the sister's date and the sister picked the brother's date. That's funny. That would and still I, work. It was great. I created it and it got picked up. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Brittany Murphy was a contestant on it. Oh, my God. Um, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt was a contestant on it. Like there were some like kids who ended up growing up and becoming, you know, very large pieces of talent on their own. Um, but uh, the show was doing very well. We were on at the same time, side by side as Saved by the Bell. Um, it was performing really well. And right. then Time Magazine came out with an article that had my face on it. And it said, should this kid be telling you when your kid should date? And that was the end of that. Uh, Parent groups got involved and they shut the whole thing down. You got canceled. You're in the cancel culture. You started the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but the show, like, I'm, I'm looking at your IMD, IMDb page, which is amazing, and all the shows that you've produced. Um, the, the first one that jumped out of my brain a little bit, remembering it, because <clears throat> it played on a bunch of levels, was Breaking Bonaducci. So, first of all, how did that come about? Did you approach Danny Bonaducci? No, it's actually a pretty decent story. So, Danny called me. Uh, they were both redheads, you yes. know what I mean? Redheads stick together kind of routine. Childhood I actors. And he called me and he said, yeah. hey, I want to do a show called Dinner at Danny's. I go, Danny, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. What, what, you're going to have celebrities over for dinner? That's not a TV show. He's like, well, VH1's really interested in it. I go, I, I highly doubt that. Yeah. You know, I'm giving him a hard time. He's like, call them. You're pulling, so a, dick, you're pulling a Dick Robertson on him. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I, I call them and they're like, yeah, we're actually interested in it. I was like, really? So he, they want to do a, a pilot. It's like, all right, I, I'll go down the road with you, Danny. I'll do, I'll do a pilot. I said, look, why don't you show me the days leading up to the dinner? Like what you have? He's like, oh, I'm, I do this. I'm doing this show. And then on the list, the day before the dinner was a couple's therapy session. And as the storyteller in me, I'm like, okay, well, if something happens in the couple's therapy, we could connect that story during the dinner and maybe make this lousy idea interesting. So we go to the couple's therapy and Danny is pure, um, uh, how do I put this? He, very high IQ, extremely high IQ. He knows what he needs to make something work. And he will do just about anything to make sure it will happen. So we go to couple's therapy and in the middle of couple's therapy, he blurts out that he's cheating on his wife. Oh, my God. And, and, it, and she goes insane, insane. And I turn to my partner and I say, the, the show is no longer dinner at Danny's. Um, the, the show is Breaking Bonaducci. Yep. And he literally fell off the cliff of life right in front of us. And if I was a more experienced producer, the show would not have been half as good because I would have stopped it. And I, I was not aware at the time of how far off the cliff of life he was getting, but it was, uh, it was pretty bad. As um, I believe the New York Times wrote about the, the show, um, this is the first show that dared to uh, show the blood on the tracks. So, yeah, you, you turned for a train wreck. This was beyond a train wreck. This yeah. was then turning the camera. No, it was, it, that's what I'm saying. It played on a bunch of levels because you had the celebrity factor of, Danny Bonaducci, but it it did delve into the mind of a guy who was, as you just said, fell off the cliff. And it was both wildly, it was entertaining and interesting and also, you know, like sadly captivating because you're, you're in, you, you, just what you said, you caught this guy in the throes of a breakdown and it was really interesting. It, it reminded my, my dad Early on, you were way too young to remember this, but there was a show on called American Life or American Family on PBS in the early 60s 
about a family in Santa Barbara, the Louds. Oh, and, of course I know it. Okay. And the you, family completely fell apart on the outside. Yes. They were amazing. And then you got in the doors of their life and one kid was gay and blah, 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 and they were divorcing. And yeah, I remember that. I, I watched it. And, and that's what Breaking Bonaducci reminded me of, except the celebrity version of him, because you are witnessing this breakdown of a guy who is, I had a little interaction with him. He always seemed like a little like Charlie Sheen to me. Like, he's a nice guy, but he's crazy. And I don't mean to like put him down like he's crazy. Like he has issues. He has mental issues. And you caught them on camera. Was- the difference, I think, between maybe him and Charlie Sheen is Danny fully believes that his kids would be better off for knowing him less. Oh. If you know what I mean. He's yeah. that self-aware. Yeah. And in Danny's worst drugged out, drunk, whatever, worst moment ever. You could still whisper in his ear, hey, I need you here at 6 a.m. And he'd show up at 5.59 and be on his mark. Right. So that's, that's, the, whole, that's the difference, I would say. Yeah. He's hyper aware that if you don't do what you're supposed to, then the camera turns away. And I wonder if that's the child actor in him. Like, you know, that's how you're trained. Like, you're on time. And uh, it, 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 I did his radio show a few times to promote Nightstand and Son of the Beach. And I was just so – he had written an article. I don't know if you remember this for Esquire years ago and it was really funny and really you know the child star who then gets into drugs and and he wrote it from this self-deprecating standpoint that was both funny and really revealing and i thought that was super interesting and then you go off and capture it on camera so um he's a real talent so here's a question it's a two-part question you got healthy like you and, and I want to take this then into The Biggest Loser. So um, how did you get healthy? Like, how did you say to yourself, you know, I'm going to make a change here. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in shape and take care of myself and, and be conscious of what goes into my body. I've always been obsessed with fitness. So that's been since very early on in life. That, that was a passion of mine. Um, very early on. So I've always been athletic. I've always been a uh, guy who loves sports, who loved going to the gym and lifting weights. And I always believed what most people believe, which is, you know, the more steaks you eat, the, you know, the more fit you're going to get protein, you know, we're cavemen. Can, what do cavemen do? They eat meat, 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 uh, you know, you just grunt meat on, you know, and I, I never really understood the, how you age. And when you get older, you're in 20 years old, you're invincible. Right. So, uh, Everybody in my family uh, struggles with their weight from grandparents on down. I was the only one in my family who never did. Um, and my mom will tell you that it was like, I was going to eat a tasty cake. I'm, I would put the tasty cake a hundred feet away, you know, unconsciously. And I'd, I'd take a bite and I'd run back to the television. And then I run during the commercial break to go get a bite. And I'd run back to the television. It's like, oh, of course. You, you should have done I mean? a commercial for tasty cakes is what you should have done. Tasty cake is a delicious yeah. Philadelphia bakery. For those of you who don't know. Yeah. And it, it's a, uh, it's a, it was a huge part of my childhood. So um, I, that part of it was- Let me was interrupt easy, for one second. My, Let me interrupt. What was your favorite tasty cake? Oh, chocolate tandy cake, without a doubt. And the butterscotch <laughs> crimp it. Yeah, yeah but the, I'm like. with you on that, 100%. Yeah. And sometimes for breakfast with a good cup of coffee, like <laughs> butterscotch crimp it. Oh, that's good. Got to freeze it. Yeah. And then, and then the butterscotch crimp it had like a plastic uh, sheathing on it. And so if it was frozen, you had to take your hand- and rub the top of it so the butterscotch topping wouldn't come off on the plastic. Yeah, you're right. It would Otherwise, you're licking yeah. the plastic and eating the cake yeah. at the same time. That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. Burns calories, though. <laughs> so anyway, so so, I had, yeah, I had no idea of him. Now, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I was a TV producer, so I wanted to produce hits. And I had some shows on that were working, thankfully, and uh, then tried to sell this show, Biggest Loser. But I can't say there were a lot of people that wanted it. Television is about wish fulfillment. Beautiful people doing amazing things in incredible locations. It's not about a grown man who's 330 pounds crying about part of his life that he lost that he can't get back. So it, it, it was definitely not a, a popular uh, pitch at the time. That's interesting. And, and, and what I'm surprised at is, and again, having spent time with you, and you mentioned the word earlier, storytelling. And that's a word that, you know, I, I do it being a writer, like I think nothing of it. But as a reality producer, 
you unscripted TV producer, you need to create stories and hope that you can create them with people who aren't actors. They're real people. That's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, well, at the time, the shows that were working were shows that were a little more mean spirited, you know, in that era. It was Joe Millionaire, right? And it, you know, it was like sort right. of making fun or tricking people. Right. And that's just, I, I can't say I wasn't entertained by those shows, but that's just not a show I know how to produce. I was always about transformative things in my own personal life and in my professional life. So to me, what an amazing story that you could take someone who's three, four, 500 pounds and turn them into Olympic heroes, right. that, that it wasn't, no one is hungry enough to eat themselves to 400 pounds. So what you perceive as hunger pain is emotional pain. Find the emotional pain and you solve the, all the problems. The issue is scientists only cared about calories in, calories out, and there's a deficit. But we cared about a lot more. And that's why people lost more with us than they do on a diet. And, and I'll just say, I've seen JD like out in public and, and he genuinely care. Like, this isn't a thing like, this isn't a shtick. Like, I've seen him with people like, hey, um, uh, what can I eat? Because, and he knows and he, gen because you genuinely care and it comes off uh, in seeing you out in the public. So I do. I have been known to slide into a booth at a restaurant. I have a girl who's crying and, and, you know, and sit there for hours. My kids are like, oh, not again. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I love people's story. I mean, yeah. I'm like you, Tim. I got, I, anyone who's new joins us to play golf, you see, I, I do the lobotomy. I like to figure out everything about them and what makes them tick because nothing we do in life is by accident. And it's all a symptom of something that's happened to us. And so I've seen firsthand how, you know, a parent can affect a child who is normal sized and healthy. And two years after that inciting, you know, emotional incident, they're 300 pounds. Right. And so the, that power of words and the power of trauma is, um, is monumental in this world. And it's creating such an epidemic health wise oh. that I just, I, I became obsessed is the only word I can say. Yeah. Well, anyway, and you created a huge monster hit in the in the meantime. So we're going to take another break. We're talking to J.D. Roth. You can find him at JDRoth.com. No, not .com. At, on Twitter, at, at J.D. Roth. Yep. And um, it's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Tim Stack. And having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends. And you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Help! Help us! Johnny! Can't these people see the Amok? It's like they don't even care! Can you get the wild man of Borneo off my back here? Who are those guys? I'm not sure I want to know! Ah! Johnny Quest, everyone! Johnny Quest! He's yeah, with baby. us! Um, I want to talk a little because I was going through the list of actors on Johnny Quest. So, a couple things about about your voice. Was that the only animated thing you ever did? No, I was under contract to General Mills when I was a teenager. I did all of their Catch Lucky. He's got Lucky Charms. Oh, really? You know, um, Munchy Crunchy Chot, like all those commercials. Yeah, I did them all. I mean, and back then when there was no uh, sort of obvious. Um, a culture for diversity and et cetera. Yeah. I played every kid. Yeah. You told me you did kid, like black kids kid, voices. Yeah. 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 And they just said, go ahead and book it. Yeah. I, I actually, I was wondering about that because I saw all the list of actors that they brought in for Johnny quest, which is crazy. The number of actors mm -hmm. who came in there who would just do one voice and leave. And now today, you know, you only do three voices because they want to save money. But then you were telling me like, yeah, you did uh, Asian kid voices and black voices. <laughs> They just and made you say, do it. They literally would say, sound more black. Yeah. I mean, you, can you imagine? Like, oh. that long? Like, it's crazy. Yeah. But the Johnny Quest thing, you know, I, I, had, I always auditioned for animated stuff. It was fun. I did a lot of guest starring roles back in the Klasky, you know, Chupo days. Yes. Um, uh, which was great work. And I, I believe it or not, like 30 years later, you still get checks, um, albeit small. But the Johnny Quest thing, I went on, I, I don't know, I, it was five, six callbacks, something crazy. And I was an, an adult, 
right. you know, well into my 20s at that point, maybe even 30. And uh, the final callback was me and like a real 13-year-old kid. Right. And you and got I was it. like, son of a bitch. Well, the that's... kid's going to get it. Like, he's a real kid. I would, and I grew up watching Johnny Quest. Like to be Johnny Quest is like that's like being Superman. Like this, come on. Yeah. And and the kid booked it. He got it. And then what? And happened? I was devastated. I mean, literally, I was devastated. And you know, I've worked on this callback for weeks. This goes on. Right. And you're driving and parking and Tim, you know the drill. Yeah. And a kid, and I was so mad. And about a month later, they called and they said, "Hey, listen, it didn't work out with the kid." Uh, we made a mistake. Would would you come in and redo the first three episodes and continue to do the next sixty five? And of course, you know the uh, the the corner you know girls that we are, <laughs> uh, we'll sell ourselves to to the devil. Yeah, I was like, absolutely. Thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> but but what reminded me? That's funny. You said you were in your twenties because it's it's a little the, the voice is a little higher pitched. And it yeah, my kids ask me to do it all the time. Yeah. And it reminded me of like the only voiceover thing I ever got was from that movie, The Brave Little Toaster, which I do a high version voice yeah. of, hey, it's light. Oh, toaster. And <laughs> so when I was going through Johnny Quest, it was like, oh, he's kind of doing a lampy thing from Brave Little Toaster to make it your voice of a kid. Yep. And yeah, which which they wanted. And um the, the idea of, and that was back when you were in the same room with all the other actors. That's when I wanted to get to. lined up in a semicircle. You know, I was literally doing Johnny Quest in the same microphone they did the Flintstones. Really? And, you know, all the Hanna-Barbera stuff was done in the same studio. And at the time, that studio still had existed. So it's no longer around anymore. But on the same microphones, because they liked the sound of the room and the tone and all of that, we did Johnny Quest there. And I got... At the time, Robert Patrick, who was Terminator, had just come out, and he was one of the at the time one of the biggest, scariest stars ever. Right. And so I would turn my head to the right to look at him on a line, and as he would turn his head sideways, I just saw him like you know he's going to kill as you, the Terminator. <laughs> you know. And every week, someone else would come in that was like the name was big. I'd walk in every week and just be like so beyond nervous. Well, you had mentioned I think we were playing golf and and uh, around the time George Siegel died and he did a bunch of these episodes which is He played my dad. Yeah. He if did you every think episode. about it, George Siegel in the 70s was a huge movie star. So for you to be in a little studio with him, it's it's just great. And he, mind-boggling. And he my was, shoulder touched his shoulder. And for he was 65 weeks. <laughs> and he was only a good guy to you, correct? Amazing. Yeah. Brilliant, genius, kind. He he showed me that even as an older man, who the older men in my life, back east, dads, you know, in the neighborhood, things right. like that, were very serious people. And George Siegel was the first older guy. And at the time, he was probably in his 50s, which is what I am, you know, but that you could have laughing fits that got so uncontrollable that you had to stop down and sit down to catch your breath. That's funny. It's funny it's from a kid from, to, to recognize that. Like, that's weird. An adult is laughing. Yeah. And that hard. Like, yes. adults giggle, but yeah. they don't cackle to the point where they can't catch their breath. And he had that on a regular basis. And it was such a beautiful thing to tap into his childlike enthusiasm you know, for what he had done. And I know he was a big deal in the seventies, but he had been through an awful lot of pain at the time I saw him, right. 20 years between drug addiction and, you know, career ending choices right. and trying to come back. And not only did he come back and by the way, our show was the first thing he did to come back. Is that true? He ended up, uh, yeah, he ended up back in network television in a substantial multiple 10 year hits yes. including the ending of you know with the goldbergs right but uh, just shoot me right he did that yeah. show i don't know how many years that right yeah um and he was an absolute joy to be around he uh was very nice to me i was uh, we've talked about this but i was a waiter at the ginger man working for carol o'connor when i first moved to la and george siegel's jazz band the beverly hills unlisted jazz band would play there on sundays for brunch and so he would always hang out. You mentioned the drug thing. It was like, you know, cocaine was just crazy then. And the band would go off. They'd do a set and then they'd all go off to where like the waiters hung out and do their thing and load up and come back. But this one day we're talking and, and um, he had gone to, I don't know if you remember the school in Lower Bucks County called the, the George School. 
uh, which no. is a Quaker boarding school on a farm. And Stephen Sondheim had gone there. So somehow I knew he went to Georgetown. And I'm, I'm just a waiter trying to be an actor. So it's like, hey, George, uh, I heard you went to George school. And he said, he, he looks at me, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I went to George school. And he said, you know who else was in my class? This is where he was so nice to me. He said, uh, uh, Blythe Danner was in the class. So I was like, oh, Blythe Danner, that's cool. Uh-huh. She's a great actress. And then he said, Keir DeLay. Now, for those of you who don't know, Keir DeLay was the other male star in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh-huh. It was Gary Lockwood and Keir DeLay. And he says, and Keir DeLay was in my class. And I, of course, have no idea who that is. And I say, oh, she's wonderful. <laughs> And George Siegel looks at me. It's that moment of looking at me, and he just went, "Yes, she is." <laughs> <laughs> he leaned totally into it. That's so yeah. Weird. It was just like, ah, kid. <laughs> There's a wonderful warmth to George that I don't know. I don't know how many people ever saw it, but there, there is just he's just a huggable dude. Yes. Yeah. I think the people I knew a couple of guys who wrote on. Just shoot me, who just loved him and said it was just a pleasure. But then I'm I'm looking at the rest of the list of people who worked on that show. Robert Foxworth, um, who was a big actor. Uh, B.J. Ward, that's an original groundling there. You were t- If any of these names ring a bell to you. Mark Hamill came in. Mark Hamill did lots of episodes. Yeah. Which he and loved. Imagine as a kid who went to the movies and waited in line for two hours to yes. see Star Wars. And I'm literally two mics over from... Mark Hamill, like, I, it was shocking. I kept thinking, like, what are these guys doing here for a session fee? Like, right. you know? But he loves that stuff. He, again, he came on Sound of the Beach. He did two episodes of Sound of the Beach. And I just couldn't wait to spend more time with him. But he loved that anything animated, he was, like, hooked in on. So I could yep. see you know who him. else was great, Tim, was um, Jeffrey Tambor. Yes, I saw his name on the list. Yeah, um, he, he did a lot of episodes, too. And he and George would get into these laughing fits that I just marveled at. I was like, I want to laugh that hard one day. <laughs> I literally can't control myself. It, it, it was beautiful the way they could just tap into that childlike part of them. So then I'm also looking at this Mayan Bialik, who was, she did a voice on the show. Uh, Lucy Liu was a voice on the show. It's just crazy. But this is the one that got me this morning. I'm looking at the list. And Brock Peters was the actor who had played Jim Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Who God, was, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't and I'm thinking that. like, and George Kennedy, Academy Award winner, was did a voice of the show. And anyway, I just, uh, amazing. So now you, I mean, you're still crazy busy and you're doing reality TV, but you also started teaching at USC. And yeah. I just, and I, I teach a class at UCLA and I just wanted to hear your, like, do you love that? I think you do love it, but I want to hear you talk about it. Absolutely love it. And in fact, I would not be a teacher at the school if it wasn't for my kid. Yeah. So my kid goes to, is in the directing program at USC. Um, I, I didn't graduate from USC because of the show. Right. And um, so I hadn't been back since 1988 and um, he got into the school. I started going to some events. Next thing you know, I started talking to some of the professors. They started asking me to speak in their classes. And before you know it, um, the dean of the school came to me and wanted to talk about the potential for how big unscripted television is and that there is not a film school in America that has an unscripted major. And wouldn't it be amazing if USC had the first unscripted major in America? So I was like, wow, that, that would be incredible to help start that curriculum, grow it, and turn it into something. But I wanted to see if I would enjoy the process. So I started teaching a class and everything you had told me about your class is true. That just seeing it through the students' eyes and helping them kind of reach their goals and and achieve, and also yet seeing how technologically they are advanced from what we were doing and their understanding of the world is, and their IQ is just, it's mind blowing. However, as high as their IQ is, right? USC is no joke. Yeah. Even they didn't really understand the difference between scripted and unscripted. And it's so unique, you know, to, that, that in their world, it's all the same. And so it's been interesting to take these kids who don't realize some of their favorite shows are unscripted television and that that's a completely different subgenre of what television is. And 
No, I know you said you really loved it, and, and I do too. The thing about teaching, and I don't know if this is true with, in your case, but the thing about teaching for me is it's made me a better writer. I don't know if that if you have found that, like asking yourself questions that you ask them, or I find myself asking myself the same questions. Like, am I doing I think this? it's harder for, um, for what you do. I think that jokes uh, that were funny aren't anymore. Yeah. I think that lines can't be crossed. The very definition of what we do is to take some risks and to find the line. Sometimes you got to cross it. And yeah. so for what you do, I, I can't even imagine how much more difficult it is from a writing perspective. I really want to show them that in life, telling a story, there is nothing more valuable. And, and period, that if you want to get on a date with a girl who's out of your league, or you want to get a raise from your boss, or you want to get a different job, or you're in research and you want to research and raise money, you got to tell a story and best story wins. And so I don't think, I, I, I think it's great that there's math and music programs in schools and all of that, but there should be a story program. Every kid should learn how to tell a story. And that's really what I try to focus on that more is, than are they going to be a producer. That is fantastic. It's almost like, yeah, you want to take a public speaking class. Everybody should take a public speaking class. But in essence, what you're saying is you're you're selling yourself. In other words, what is your story and how do I create? That's a wonderful, wonderful thought. And, and it doesn't have to be out loud. It can be on paper. It can right. be on camera. Right? There's all sorts of different ways to tell that type of story. But I don't think that kids understand that everything in life is developed. We're always developing something. Right. And that's an inner story. It's an external story, how we want people to perceive us. There's always a story going through our head. And to be able to figure out how to take a blank sheet of paper and develop that into something that somebody wants to watch is a powerful experience. And it's all I'm good at. So I'm so passionate about it, right. you know, to try to express them how important it is. And there's no hiding in my class, right? So everyone's got to develop an idea and everyone has to present that idea and everyone has to make that idea as well. And you know how hard it is to take a, a piece of paper and convince someone to give you millions of dollars for it. And you do office run throughs and you try to make it perfect. But we don't know, like you didn't know that Sprung was going to be as good as it is. It's terrific. Yeah. But like you, you can't know until you know, and then it's too late. That one I kind of knew was going to be great because it was it wasn't my show. It was Greg Garcia's show, so I'm looking at it like, wow, I think this is going to be really good. You know, when it's your own show, you can't. You know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like you're. Well, we've around. also been around long enough in yeah. combined almost a hundred years of, uh, you know, being in the business. I think you you know when chemistry's happening. Yes, you can feel it now. You you don't know for sure it's going to be a hit, but you know when something feels special. Yeah. Well, we didn't get time to talk about, I wanted to talk about like this, the state of show business today. We ran out of time. This was really great, J.D. Thank you so much. My guest today, I just want to thank again, J.D. Roth, who is a good friend. He's a golf partner, uh, has a wonderful family who I've gotten to know too. And uh, uh, you can find him at J.D. Roth on Twitter. He's the author of the book, The Big Fat Truth and Your Money, The Missing Manual. And not the handbook of Lutheranism. That's not him. That's another J.D. Roth. Although I kind of want to meet that guy. Like, what's... I have. You carry it? You have? I have. You carry around a handbook. It's like of Lutheranism. Anyway, J.D., thank you so much. Uh, I'll see you soon. I'm dropping avocados off at your house shortly. Payment in avocados is the only way for me to. <laughs> <laughs> we had a little barter deal going, everybody, on today. Do my podcast. You'll get some guacamole. Um, <laughs> thank you, sir. I'll see you soon. And to everybody, it's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I'll see you next time. As always, a big thanks to Dr. D for making our voices come alive on the airwaves and to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Be sure to check out our very own Richard Dugan, a.k.a. Dr. D, Peabody Award-nominated radio show. Tell me your story every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and sound and producer engineer Richard Dr. D. Dugan and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 